So it turns out the key to losing weight and keeping it off is not in carbs, it's not in fat, or even in probiotic-rich foods. No, you see, the end game of having a healthy weight as well as a lot more energy and a long and healthy life comes down to a specific switch that you can flip in your body to flush out unnecessary calories. Now, Dr. Stephen Gundry is calling this caloric bypass. And by activating this specific process in your body, he's seen thousands, yes, thousands of people dramatically improve their health, even at age 50 and beyond. Now, this includes losing weight, getting tons more energy, and returning to the good health they had in their youth once they simply addressed the one key to better health. Not only that, but this is actually associated with improved digestion, strong feeling joints and muscles, smoother skin, and healthier lives, meaning it could be the key to a happy life. Dr. Stephen Gundry has lost 70 pounds himself using his research, and he's kept the weight off for over 20 years and counting. His digestive issues are gone, his health is fantastic, and he feels younger and healthier today than he did in his 40s. His video has been watched by over 20 million people to date, and you can watch and learn more about it at The Healthy Fat dot com forward slash Zach. It's linked at the bottom of this video at the top of the description, and he'll teach you exactly how he's kept this weight off for free if you just go and watch the free video at thehealthyfat.com forward slash Zach. Once again, click the link in the description below this video, and when you support my sponsors, you support this channel. All right. Look at that. Of course, that's not right either. All right. That is my face. My voice should be coming through if you guys can confirm for me in the chat that you actually hear me. I was speaking earlier. It didn't appear that the audio was going through, and it looks like I saw in the chat it wasn't. And I was uh, finally able to reset my board, and it looks like things are working right now. All right, Gus, that's totally cool. You don't have to trust him, but uh, he is a sponsor of today's program. So if anybody wants to check out that video, it's totally free. I would sincerely appreciate it. Doesn't cost you a thing, and it lets the advertisers know that it's a good place to advertise. So five by five, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, so let us begin today uh, by going over a couple of select pieces of information. First of all, uh, we are going to be talking about new information in regards to Tafari Campbell, Chef Tafari Campbell. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about an update on what happened in Maui with the fires. There has been basically not much coming out about that in recent days. Uh, my guest over the weekend uh, mentioned something pretty shocking about the COVID-19 clot shots and some of the stuff that was found within them, and that opens up the door for litigation for people who have been injured by the COVID vaccines. And this is something I want to make sure all of you are aware of, because whether or not you took the shot directly, I guarantee you every single one of us knows at least one person who did. So let's begin by checking in with the Biden regime and their situation in New Hampshire. Now, this is in my estimation, the first time I've ever heard of this happening. But Joe Biden, who is the sitting resident at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, is not going to appear on the New Hampshire Democratic primary ballot. However, write-ins are still an option. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would someone who is president of the United States on paper not be appearing on the primary ballot? is Does it have something to do with a deadline that they've missed? Uh, is there, are, are you guys saying, uh, Mugga Q, are, are you saying that, uh, you're saying that you can't look? Um, are you saying that because my voice is out of sync with the audio? Because somebody mentioned that earlier, and um, 
uh, yeah. Anyways, I don't know. I don't know what the hell's going on with Rumble, guys. There's been a lot of problems, but I can tell you that if you're over there on the foxhole, uh, then everything does work, um, you know, as it's supposed to. But so check this out. Joe Biden will not be appearing on the primary ballot for New Hampshire in 2024. This is coming from his reelection campaign. So it's not some conspiracy. It's not somebody who is uh, speculating on it. Um, it, He is opting to skip this contest that the state holds to uh, determine who the actual pick from that state is going to be. Uh, It's apparently in defiance of a revamped primary order that the White House has championed. So the White House offered or suggested that they change their primaries. uh, And as a result, Joe Biden's not going to be competing. Julie Chavez Rodriguez, she's the manager of Joe's reelection campaign. She wrote in a letter to the New Hampshire Democratic primary chair, Raymond Buckley, that while the president wishes to participate in the primary, he is obligated to comply with party rules. So, It appears that the New Hampshire state Democrats have done something that the DNC is not happy with. The president looks forward to having his name on New Hampshire's general election ballot as the nominee of the Democrat Party after officially securing the nomination at the 2024 Democratic National Convention, where he will tirelessly campaign to earn every single vote in the Granite State next November. So he just doesn't care enough about the primary. Now, last year, He had urged the DNC to shake up the order of the 2024 primary. I remember covering that at the time. Uh, What he was hoping to do was to replace Iowa's leadoff caucus with the South Carolina primary, which he said that would uh, better empower black and other minority voters crucial to the party's base. Uh, Obviously, no matter how much pandering Joe Biden has done to black Americans or people of color all across this nation, uh, they are all waking up and making the conscious decision to vote for anyone but this Alzheimer's patient. Now, New Hampshire uh, is going to be on February. No, I'm sorry. South Carolina's primary will be on. February 3rd, that would be the first one. And then three days later, there's New Hampshire and then Nevada. But New Hampshire, I guess, was not happy about this plan. They argued that they had traditionally held the nation's opening primary. So a rule that Iowa only got around because they had caucuses. So top Democrats in New Hampshire say that their state law mandates hosting the nation's first primary and officials have vowed to have a primary prior to South Carolina's, regardless of what the DNC says. It sounds like it's mass chaos to me, uh, which is kind of uh, uh, fun to watch as an outsider, because as I've said so many times on here, it seems like Democrats are pretty unified across the board. Uh, They seem to fall in line with each other, and they do exactly what the National Party says. But the DNC says that this is going to lead to an unsanctioned primary that could trigger sanctions against New Hampshire and the DNC there. This is going to include potentially losing delegates to the 2024 Democratic Convention in Chicago. What a way to tell a state that you don't need them to be able to get the nomination. But in the meantime, the voters of New Hampshire are still going to be able to write in Joe Biden's name, even though it's an unsanctioned primary. And of course, I'm sure that Joe and the DNC will accept that uh, if worse comes to worst. Uh, Right now, they have a formal date set for its 2024 primary, uh, but they have stated in regards to this letter, the reality is that Joe Biden will win the New Hampshire 
first in the nation primary in January, win nomination in Chicago, and will be reelected in November. Uh, This is going to be the first time a sitting president has foregone appearing on New Hampshire's primary ballot. Uh, If we go back to 1968, Lyndon B. Johnson didn't file for the state's primary, and he still won via write-in. Eugene McCarthy, who is the Minnesota senator running against him, took a strong second-place finish in the state, and that helped to push Johnson to announce a mere couple of weeks later that he wouldn't seek re-election. Now, I knew that as soon as people saw this, uh, they would uh, they would get giddy at the possibility that Joe Biden might not be able to run for office or perhaps there was some other process taking place in the background that might preclude him from being able to do so. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, Joe Biden is the Democrat nominee for the time being. Now, at the end of the day, I'm actually pretty happy about that. If Donald Trump is going to be facing anyone, uh, I think it should be the man who single-handedly bears the responsibility for destroying the nation. So let's go ahead and keep him right where he is. All right, so now I'm going to play this video for you from my buddy Green Lives Matter, a.k.a. uh, Pepe Lives Matter. And this is a firsthand witness account of the traffic being blocked in Lahaina, Maui, uh, on the day of the fire. And she's describing her experiences, her and her children sitting in the car, essentially waiting for the fires to reach them with nowhere to go. I'm really glad that we're seeing mainstream sources in Hawaii still asking questions. Why was traffic blocked? Why was it such a cluster on that day? And where were fire and rescue services? Obviously, the police and the firemen, they're going to be doing their best. If they're told to go to a certain area, they're going to go to that area. Uh, But it just seems like if there is a fire and it's licking at the heels of every single car that you're blocking on a major highway, the only road out of the fire-stricken area— you're going to go ahead and make an executive decision. Apparently, that didn't happen in Hawaii. So let's go ahead and take a look. At the bottom, there was cones blocking the road if you wanted to drive, like, towards Kaanapali, Napili side. Myself and the line of traffic I was in continued straight down the Hainaluna Road, headed towards Front Street. 911 emergency. How can I help you? I'm calling down from Lahaina. We're on Front Street in Baker. There are a bunch of cars stuck in traffic down here, and the structures around us are on fire. You were just stuck. There was nowhere to go, and there was no help. Noah Lani Tot took video of Baker Street as the fire moved within one block of Front Street. By about 4.10, we get to Baker Street. At 4.17 is when we got that emergency alert. The text message Noelani received from Maui Emergency Management reads, Evacuation order issued on Maui Island for Kilauea Mauka subdivision in Lahaina, a neighborhood a mile away. You are not safe. you got to find some way to get to the ocean. The mother of three says she even started contemplating going into the water as traffic stalled and conditions worsened. By 4.24, we are engulfed in black smoke. You can't see more than four cars ahead of you. Sparks start engulfing the car, shooting sideways across next to the cars. Shortly after that is when the parking garage at the outlet mall went up. Okay. And nobody was there actively fighting the fire. Firefighters were seen here a mile away at 4.46 p.m. by Tamuras in the industrial complex. Meanwhile, Front Street becomes engulfed. My five-year-old just cried the entire the entire time. Oh, no. What do we do now? And it wasn't until 
after we got to like behind Safeway where he could see a little bit of blue skies that finally he fell asleep too because he was just so tired. There were so many people behind me that I have no idea whether or not they survived. Noah Lani Todd is still asking the question so many other survivors are. Why was an incoming traffic contraflowed? Why was Highway 30 shut for at least two and a half hours? I mean, at that point, it just seems like you need to use the biggest roads to get the most people out. Ended up getting all the way to the end where you could have tried to get out, and then there was police officers there in cones. And how was it a wider text alert didn't go out with this advice 911 operators offered to evacuees? Just get out of Lahaina. Oh, the entire city? The entire city, yes. Just get out of Lahaina. No, Alani Todd and the three kids made it to the end of Front Street at 6 p.m., then past the Front Street roadblock. She said the police officer trying to manage the intersection appeared overwhelmed. Adding to the strangeness of it all, she says when her ohana finally arrived in Napili later that night, those she spoke to there had no idea what was happening to the south in Lahaina town. So that right there, that that statement, that the knowledge of the devastation that was taking place was virtually unknown outside of this area. Uh, I think I can answer a couple of questions for this reporter. I mean, obviously, we know that people who were woefully underqualified for their jobs were in charge that day. Uh, others who were in charge were not even in town. They were out gallivanting around. They they were uh, heading up to uh, conferences on other islands. And I think that there is a, an argument that can be made that the people who died in Lahaina were killed on purpose. Uh, because, you know, I mean, I mean, you listen to an account like that, and thank God she and her kids got out, but there was a line of cars behind her, and we've all seen the videos, we've all seen the pictures, so many people dead, and uh, I don't believe that they've been honest about the number of people dead. I, I, I know this problem has not been solved. There are still thousands of people without a home. Uh, there is still just chaos taking place there, and I'm hoping to have my friend Scott Adam, who lives in Maui, come back on the show here rather soon so that we can kind of talk about what's happened in the meantime, because the coverage on this has just gone away. You know, there is really no opportunity for people to uh, uh, broadcast about this from the island because everybody's homes are basically destroyed, so they have to live in these semi-public areas. Uh, You have a clampdown on information from the state and local government. Uh, and uh, you have what is essentially a land grab. They don't want people paying attention to this issue, and they don't want people bringing outside attention more than anything, because obviously on an island, it's a little bit easier to control people. You know, I mean, think about those cops. I, I have a great respect for police officers who do their job. But where the hell were the men on that day? Where were the men who could take a look at a situation? People are going to die. You make an executive decision to ensure that the people you're supposed to be protecting are not burned alive in a line in front of you. And it is just one of the most tragic incidents that I can possibly imagine. So I'm really glad that uh, there is some information getting out from there, but there needs to be a whole hell of a lot more. Okay. Bob Kudla is RP78's dad. Nah, he's not really, but (laughs) uh, yeah. Okay, so 
Uh, let us continue on right here. Uh, we also have brand new audio revealed from the Secret Service agent who called 911 on the day that Chef Tafari Campbell drowned in about eight feet of water just outside the Obama's playground in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, this initial 911 call has now been admitted to have come from the Obama residence. Uh, we have the 26-year-old female who is still unidentified, who is paddleboarding paddle with Chef Tafari Campbell, not his wife, allegedly not one of the Obama girls. Uh, we are only getting this audio as a result of the uh, good people at Judicial Watch. Uh, because they're the ones who have been going after all of the records. They're the ones who have really been doing the legwork. Judicial Watch said the records, which are heavily redacted, indicate Barack Obama arrived at the emergency response scene via motorcade. A short time later, a cold, wet woman who was a witness arrived. The next morning, the eyewitness was interviewed in the Obama residence, again with Barack Obama present. How normal is that for you know, anybody to be present in the midst of an interview about someone uh, witnessing the death of another person. Uh, so let's go ahead and take a listen to this call. This one is a little bit longer. Emergency. But here we go. Drowning in the um, back of the property right now. We have our rescue swimmers. They're attempting to go out there um, right now. Uh, what's your phone number that you called in on? What's the best access? Key swimmer and an agent driving down there right now to get on the boat. Uh, someone came running up to our uh, back post saying that a gentleman, uh, it's just a guest of the house, um, is out there drowning. So right now, a rescue swimmer. A guest of the house? No, he had been the Obama's personal chef throughout their entire tenure at the White House throughout the time since they've left public service, Chef Tafari Campbell was a little bit more than a guest. I don't know if this Secret Service agent is just trying to downplay the circumstances surrounding this unfortunate passing or if he's unaware. But from my understanding, Secret Service details uh, tend to stick around. I mean, people are put onto a job like protecting a former president. And as long as you don't screw up, that's where you stay out there and you said you guys have boat access so what do you guys need do you need an ambulance or do you need water rescue as well um they didn't advise right now um i would say at least an ambulance and i don't know if they're what they're doing in the back of the property right now i know they're getting we have our rescue swimmer who's getting the boat right now um so um, I would say at least an ambulance. I don't know what the All right. speed time is. All right, I'll send the ambulance over, and I'll uh, contact the fire chief and see where he wants to go, the duty chief, and see where if he wants to drop the boat in there. Um, and uh, I don't know if you have, like, a better number for me to call you back if we get him out of the water, and I can give you another situation report. They're not passing anything over the radio right now. Yeah, I can give you that if you'd like. Yeah, we'll, go ahead. We'll have our uh, our gate open, and we'll send the ambulance down to the front of the house. And uh, I'll I'll call you back once I hear about uh, 
once they give a status report down by the water. Mm -hmm. And do you know if it's a male or a female? Just it's a male, 40, 40. All right. All right. So I, I see people are um, a little bit suspicious about the nature of this call. The first thing I noticed is that this Secret Service agent, he appear, he sounds very young. All right. Uh, he 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 definitely sounds like he is a young man. Now, it may just be he's got a higher voice. I, I don't know. Uh, but he appears to me to sound just a little bit inexperienced, a little bit young. Uh, and I have to wonder if we're talking about a murder of the live-in lover of Big Mike Obama and Barry Obama, Barry Soatoro, if we're talking about a murder here, um, is it conceivable to think that perhaps uh, we have uh, a, a, a number of people who might be helping in the cover-up of that murder? Again, this man was not a novice in the water. Uh, he may not have learned to swim at a young age, but there was evidence to show that he could swim in Olympic size swimming pools. Uh, clearly, uh, if he ha if he owned a paddleboard, if he owned a wetsuit, then uh, and if he was living at Martha's Vineyard for the last four plus years, it stands to reason he ha had been out on the water before. But more than anything, eight feet of water. And personally, I think this is a Loretta Fuddy type situation. I, I think that. Maybe this guy was going to come out with uh, some salacious details about his life with the Obamas. Uh, they got wind of it, and uh, they knocked him off his paddleboard and probably disposed of him under the water, which is why he never came back up. But continue. Well. All right. I will uh, I'll start telling everyone out there, okay? Okay. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Ooh, James Carville was in town. He is a notorious, notorious DNC fixer. James Carville, that is suspicious. July 23, 2023, 2, 2000, 23, 19, 53, 13. Sheriff's office communication. Um, so our rescue swimmers aren't able to locate the uh, gentleman that's uh, that was reported drowning. I also want to say, take a look at the water. Like, it's not murky. This isn't like a swamp. It appears to be fairly clean. So I'm not familiar specifically with Martha's Vineyard. I don't know what the visibility of that water is. But just looking at it from this kind of bird's eye drone view, it appears to be uh, pretty good visibility. Um. So they they they're out in the water right now, uh -huh. um, but as of now they have no they they don't they don't know where he is. Okay, so they're unable to locate the party right now. Correct. Okay. So do you have any description of what he was wearing? Um, do we know what he was wearing? Hey, um, uh, yeah, I mean this guy sounds like a high school kid. He does not sound like somebody who is a, a, a career Secret Service agent. I don't know. Maybe that's why they uh, they don't want us to know who he is. Stand by, I'll let you know here in a second. Okay, now, I, I want you to pay attention right here, because there is some undecipherable noise in the background, and it almost 
sounds to me like there is a woman who's crying, like she's breaking down. So keep your ears on, on this part. Yeah, so he's wearing all black. He's on a paddleboard. Uh, he's 40, 40th year old uh, black gentleman, regular build. Um, and we have our rescue swimmers on a boat in the area right now. Okay. And they haven't they haven't located the um the the, the paddleboard either. Uh, one second. Okay, so I see somebody who paddleboards at night. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I, if you're somebody who's comfortable in the water like this, who's to say that they didn't have perhaps uh, some sort of light gear with them? Or, I mean, it was summer. This is back in June, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was either June or July. Uh, but at 7.53, that's when the second 911 call was made. We don't exactly know the the real timeline, the strict timeline of when this guy went in the water. So I think at best we can say it was probably evening, so the light was waning, but it's possible that there may have been enough light to be comfortable out there for anybody. Yes, and the other part is that they're mentioning that he's wearing the wetsuit, but he was discovered naked, which is totally not normal for somebody who's in the midst of drowning. Hey, Payne from Command Post. Have you located the paddleboard? <laughs> Copy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So they have uh, they have the paddleboard and his hat. Okay, but not him. And do we do we know if he was wearing a life vest? Uh, sorry, Dad. Hey, Command Post. Can you advise if he was wearing a life vest? <laughs> Copy, thank you. That's a negative. He's not wearing a life vest. No life vest? No. Okay. I, I have, um, Bravo 2, B2 fire attack. Um, all right, so we have everybody on the way over there now to um, meet with you guys um, and gather their resources. I'm going to give the uh, responding fire chief the update. Okay, so that's it. Uh, it doesn't seem like we have any more sufficient information about the death of Tafari Campbell. Uh, but the good thing that I can see here is that it appears that information is continuing to trickle out. Now, I saw somebody mention that um, didn't Obama have the medical examiner swapped out? I feel like I remember hearing something about that early on, but I, I'm unable to find anything at the moment. Um, the official medical examiner uh, that did the autopsy was the office of the chief medical examiner of Massachusetts. Uh, and so obviously this is a high profile case. So that might be why the state took it over. But also it may be because they're a little bit easier to control than a small town medical examiner who may be looking to make a name for themselves. So 
Tafari Campbell is still dead and his wife has disappeared from social media. Don't know where she is or what the deal is, but uh, hopefully we continue to get additional information. And uh, I'm loving all the puns that I'm seeing uh, in the chat. (laughs) The preponderous and uh, yes, all of that stuff. The daughters ran to the local airport and left before 911 was called. Oh, let me see. Uh, Obama daughter's location, day of chef death. Let's see. Malia and Sasha Obama were spotted flying off to Martha's Vineyard on Tuesday after the tragic death of the family's public or personal chef. Malia and ooh, 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 ooh. I actually missed this one, guys. So thank you very much for mentioning that in the chat. Malia and Sasha Obama are pictured leaving Martha's Vineyard after the death of private chef Tafari Campbell, who was a beloved member of the family. Uh, Let me see. Here they – okay, so this is them at the airport. I was hoping that we were going to have a picture of them leaving uh, the the residence. Now, they said a 26-year-old woman was the one who was paddleboarding with him. Malia and Sasha are – or well, Sasha's 22, Malia is 25. Is it possible that one of the Obama girls was the one actually paddleboarding with Chef Tafari Campbell? Only God knows at this point. Uh, But here they are at a small private regional airport, probably taking a a private plane, multi-million dollar plane owned by the Obamas, bought with the ill-gotten gains of all of their grifting of the American people. Yeah, they skedaddled right out of there. Uh, Let me see. The city's webpage shows the pond depth is only three to four and a half feet deep. That, my friends, is even more interesting. Let's pull that up as well. Thank you very much for that. I had only ever heard that it was uh, about eight feet deep. But if if it's at best four and a half feet deep, that is not shallow. That is too shallow to, to drown in unless somebody's holding you under. Here we go. The 4,850-acre watershed is almost completely in Edgar Town, which is a small area west of, at West Hisbury. The pond has an acre of 544 to 840 acres, a mean – well, it's a mean depth of three to four and a half feet. So it is conceivable that in the area where he actually drowned, it could be deeper. I mean, that's just the average – uh, depth all over the entire pond. And with an area of 840 acres, uh, the, the, there could be a lot of variance in there in a bunch of different places. All right. So, uh, yes, it, it easier to hold someone under. I would say so. All right. So over the weekend, uh, my guest that appeared, I believe it was on Saturday, Dr. Michael Schwartz. Uh, Michael was a research, well, he is a research scientist, And uh, he was involved in the uh, situation in the pandemic early on because he owned uh, a number of testing laboratories. And so he had firsthand information about the severity and uh, and dangers or or rather lack thereof surrounding COVID and the pandemic. He knew right away that this was not something that was going to kill millions of people, and so there was no point in wearing masks. There, there was no point in standing six feet apart. But uh, in the course of uh, writing his book just uh, about the testing regime and the lies told by Fauci and, uh, and his NIH and you know all of those medical establishment groups, 
Uh, he had come to learn, uh, and uh, we all did just, I believe, about a week ago, that the mRNA COVID vaccines or clot shots uh, or genetic therapies, whatever you want to call them, it's just easier to say vaccine, rolls off the tongue, uh, they were contaminated with uh, a number of uh, very key items. And uh, since the advent of these shots, uh, people have been investigating them and looking at them. And there's been a lot of individual stories about the various constituents that people have been finding. Uh, and those findings are not always uniform. As we've spoken about many times uh, in the past, there seems to be variances between batches, uh, locations of where they're produced. Uh, also, of course, the temperature is very important. If the batches are kept at too low or too high of a temperature, it can make them more or less dangerous. But what is most shocking and most compelling about the vaccines, uh, and specifically the Pfizer shot, is that uh, simian virus 40 was found in these vaccine trial, excuse me, in these vaccine vials back in April of this year. Now, the disclosure of SV40 contamination within the Pfizer vaccines themselves, um, it, we don't know whether or not they told the FDA about it. Now, if you have been following the saga of vaccine science and its efficacy for any length of time, you might remember SV40 as the monkey virus that causes cancer, a variety of different exotic cancers. And it was found to be in the polio vaccine uh, in the mid-20th century. Now, they knew that SV40 was in that polio vaccine. Uh, but at the time, the scientists and doctors that were conducting the research, they chose not to do anything about it. And it probably had a financial component as a result of the mass inoculation of children all across America, uh, you had uh, essentially an explosion in cancers. Uh, I'm sure every single one of you knows somebody or maybe even yourself. You are afflicted with cancer right now. And I wonder, did you ever receive the polio vaccine or did the people you know who died of cancer receive the polio vaccine? My father certainly received the polio vaccine. Uh, it leaves a very conspicuous scar on, on the arm of, uh, of, of the uh, inoculation site. It's like 20 needles going in in one spot and, uh, and you, you just can't miss it if you see it. So these COVID vaccines were adulterated as a result of their presence of SV40. And because of that adulteration, because it was not what was meant to be in these jabs, that leaves the door open for people who have been injured by those specific vaccines or clot shots uh, to actually go after the manufacturers for legal damages. Uh, and uh, to be fair, they should not be allowed to remain on the market because if there's anything that we can say conclusively about SV40 is that it causes cancer in humans. So if you took one of these Pfizer shots that hasn't gotten you sick yet, it doesn't mean that it's not going to make you seriously ill and potentially kill you into the future. Uh, so this is definitely something that I'm going to be following with uh, with great fervor because I think that everybody needs to pay attention to it. Uh, and I know that many of you did not get the vaccines or the clot shots, but I know that there are some of you out there who did. And I want to make sure that you're OK and that you have all of the information that you need. Uh, so 
Steve Kirsch is the one who uh, was speaking about this this past week. And he said, you can now sue the mRNA COVID vaccine manufacturers for damages. And the FDA is required to take the COVID vaccines off the market. Why is that? Adulteration. The plasmid bioactive contaminant sequences were not pointed out to the regulatory authorities. So Pfizer most likely knew about the presence of SV40 in these jabs, and they intentionally chose not to tell the FDA about it. Why is that? Well, because the FDA never would have agreed to allow this out on the market or theoretically they couldn't or shouldn't have allowed for it to go out no matter how experimental it was. Um, Penny says, Zach, you're thinking of smallpox. Polio was an oral vax. Really? Because my dad always told me that that was a a polio um, inoculation site. I don't know. I I guess maybe you would know better than I am. Um, But um, all right. So continuing on. Uh, Steve Kirsch was speaking with a number of medical professionals who have been around this subject for quite some time. Uh, and, uh, and he says that as a result of this news coming out, the FDA is at a crossroads. They have a couple of different choices. Either they can admit that they knew about this SV40 contamination and then they failed to disclose it to the public or to outside committees, or they can claim that they didn't know about it, which is going to mean that rather than the government being liable, that means that Pfizer is going to be liable. But the only thing is that Pfizer documents are slowly being revealed, and that is leading to conclusive information about exactly what the FDA knew and when. So they doubt that there's going to be a disclosure of SV40 contamination, which means that Pfizer knowingly approved the distribution of this adulterated COVID-19 clot shot to hand out to people. And uh, as a result, likely they could have kicked off another cancer epidemic. Um, Polio vaccine is now an injection in the USA. Thank you very much, Penny. All right. So people see that, uh, yes, polio was a live virus as recently as the 1990s. My daughters both got the oral polio. I never got polio. They never gave me polio or um, or or smallpox. So I don't know if I should count myself lucky. Looks like my mom is texting me as well. Yes, smallpox. Your dad got the salkpox vaccine. That's the one that leaves the distinctive scars. Smallpox. Polio vax was oral. Okay. Thank you very, very much, everyone, for correcting me. I, I appreciate it. That's why I like live uh, uh, programs such as this. So my question out there is, if you are a person who has been injured by the COVID vaccine or you took the COVID vaccine and you're afraid that perhaps you might be in the future, it really doesn't matter. Uh, if you can prove that you took one of these vaccines that had the adulteration of the SV40 in it, uh, then you have legal justification to go after both the FDA and Pfizer. So the discovery of the SV40 present in all vials of the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine that was disseminated to the public. Uh, And uh, this has been confirmed by several independent laboratories worldwide. Uh, And they've asked Pfizer and the FDA for comment, but neither of them have said anything. There has been no open investigation. Canadian authorities have not said anything. They haven't taken anything off the market. Uh, There are so many people who are injured as a result of taking it. Uh, And uh, essentially... Lives were ruined, lives were lost, and there was a intentional effort to ensure that a mass destruction of humanity took place as a result of these clot shots being introduced 
into the population. We have an update on a court case that's currently ongoing. I saw people talking about it earlier today, and I thought it would be important uh, to give a couple of caveats to what exactly is happening here. Uh, We're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. We'll be right back after this. So recently, I've told you guys about a breakthrough new anti-aging remedy that I've been using that keeps me energized all day long. I just take a teaspoonful of C60 Evo olive oil in the morning, and I notice better mental focus, flexibility, and physical endurance. Now, it's rare to feel improvements this quickly. I also end up sleeping deeper at night, so it's really helpful. Their peptide and ESS60 hair and lotion renewal formulas are exceptional because they really work. And C60 Evo's lab has been manufactured Manufacturing this Nobel Prize winning miracle molecule for 32 years in their Houston, Texas Patriot owned lab. ESS 60 is the upgraded version of the carbon 60 molecule. It's specifically made for both people and pets. It's a potent and effective way for people's lives to be improved all around the world. So maximize your health and enjoy noticeable results with C60 Evo organic edible oils, skin serums, and pet products. You can buy with confidence from C60 evo and you can use my personal code for a discount at checkout simply go to c60evo.com forward slash red pill 78 and then when you're there use code red pill 78 for an additional 10 percent off your entire order once again that's c60evo.com forward slash red pill 78 and when you support my sponsors you support this channel All right. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking around. So earlier today, uh, there was uh, some uh, some flurry on Twitter as people were discussing this case, which was recently filed in the 11th Circuit. Uh, It was an emergency writ to hear a case to invalidate the 2020 and 2022 elections, of course, with the argument being that they were fraudulent. Now, if this court goes, excuse me, if this case goes to court, then Justice Clarence Thomas would be the one overseeing it. Uh, However, there is a couple of complications. Um, First of all, this is a case that was filed by a woman named Christine Scott in the Northern District of Florida, uh, and she has filed it pro se. So she's filed it on her own. And from what I understand, it is a very lengthy filing. Uh, I have not had time to go through the entire thing. Um, But uh, she did not file it in the way that the court wanted it to be filed. So they've given her two weeks to refile it with the proper formatting so that they will go ahead and take a look at it uh, to decide if they're actually going to take it up. So this, the writ of mandamus would be initially looked at by Judge Clarence Thomas. He would rule on it independently uh, to either bring it on to the Supreme Court, forward it for the entire court to look at, or he could dismiss it outright. Uh, But the applicant, Christine uh, Scott, is saying that Florida's 2022 general election with a 2020 option should be set aside and held anew. And there would also be room for the 2020 election cycle to be set aside as well, since the evidence that she's pointing to shows that the same uncertified and uncertifiable equipment was used in both election cycles. Now, I absolutely agree with Ms. Scott's assertions, um, I, but again, I haven't had the opportunity to look at the entire document uh, to determine exactly what the evidence is that she's showing. But according to Ms. Scott, the same evidence proves that the whole of the elections throughout the entire country We're all vulnerable to the exact same fraud that she's pointing to in Florida. So the question would then be, 
Does Clarence Thomas allow this to move forward for the whole Supreme Court to consider? Uh, Would he set aside the results of the entire country for both 2020 and 2022 election cycles? Or could he rule that an injunction would be placed pending review for the entire court? Uh, There are a couple of different things that could possibly happen here. Now, uh, there are people who have great success with pro se litigation, uh, i.e. filing litigation without a lawyer involved. In many cases, one of the the reasons that lawyers in America have just stayed as far away from these election challenges as they possibly can is because when they do, they oftentimes receive sanctions. Uh, They get threats that they're going to lose their their practice, their their ability to to practice law, their license. Uh, And so uh, unfortunately, too many people have just not had uh, the uh, intestinal fortitude to go through with it. So there is an opportunity for election related contests to get not only before the uh, the 11th, but also before the Supreme Court. It's all going to depend on the revisions that Ms. Scott makes to her filing. Uh, and if she's able to do it in such a way that the court has no objections to it and they allow it to move forward, well, then we're going to have a very interesting scenario. So I just wanted to put those caveats on it because it's not necessarily a game changer yet. In my mind, it's a lot like the the Brunson Brothers cases. You know, certainly uh, the the claims made in the Brunson Brothers filings, I believe, are 100% factual. Uh, but the question is, uh, will these courts even allow for these arguments to be made before them? Uh, judge Thomas is as good a judge as any that I can possibly imagine uh, would take a look at this. Uh, but based upon the overall I guess, makeup of the current Supreme Court. I don't have a a lot of uh, of confidence in their ability to look at these things objectively. As they've shown in the past, they've also not really been willing to look at any of this stuff having to do with the election. And they also just recently ruled in a majority decision that the federal government, Joe Biden and his regime, can continue working directly with social media companies uh, to stifle the free speech of American citizens, which is a direct affront to the First Amendment. So something to keep on the back burner and definitely something we're going to be checking on in the coming weeks. All right. So uh, just let me do a couple of quick thank yous over here from my friends at pilled.net. Pauly9363, thank you so much for the shades. Uh, Dragon Energy 45 says, thank you for all you do, Zach. Sean Joe, thanks for the cookie. I Zeke Truth says, hi, Red Pill. Good to see you, buddy. Red Pill Ken, good to see you, my friend. Thank you for the can. And Silent Runner 17 says, God bless us all. These demons are truly demons. Yes, they absolutely are. Uh, Wanadana, you think that he's going to recuse himself? Uh, why would he recuse himself? I, I think that, you know, as the Supreme Court justice overseeing the 11th Circuit, uh, I think it's more likely that he would just dismiss the case if it doesn't meet the legal medal that they are used to. This is one of the sad things about the American judicial system is that you have to work within very strict boundaries if you're going to get your case moving along uh, and have anybody actually give you the time of day. Uh, and uh, in the instance of where somebody isn't a lawyer and doesn't have a firm grasp on exactly what that formatting needs to be, it can, uh, of course, cause complications. Now, my good friend uh, Robert Beatles, uh, he is not a lawyer, but he has uh, uh, taken uh, his uh, educational uh, um, um, 
career up to a Juris Doctorate. So he could become a lawyer, he could take the bar, but he has specifically stayed away from taking the bar. First of all, he hates lawyers, and <laughs> I can understand that. Uh, but also, he doesn't want them to be able to threaten him with losing his law license. So he can file things all day, and uh, and it's perfect. Uh, you can get it right through. The only reason that somebody in, like a judge wouldn't want to hear it is if they specifically wanted to stay away from whatever it might be. All right, so we had an interesting statement. This is kind of building on the video clip that I showed last week and John and I showed again on Monday, uh, we have a vast awakening taking place all across this country. So many people who were anti-Trump simply because they didn't like the way he tweeted uh, and they weren't willing to accept that his decisions and the decisions of so many in his administration were actually helping the United States of America. But since Joe Biden moved into the White House, it's been quite difficult uh, to uh, continue to lie to themselves. So we have a former New York Times reporter. Uh, this is, of course, Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss uh, has written about this political awakening. Now, she actually quoted that podcast that I showed you last week and John and I showed you again on Monday. And uh, she sees an even greater political awakening happening as a result of the division now rocking America over the war between Hamas and Israel. Uh, she made the argument on in her piece this past Monday. She said, here's an example of what we mean. A friend appalled at the equivocation and apologies in the West after the brutal Hamas killings told us that he used to consider himself a conscientious objector in the culture wars. Not anymore, he said. October 7th changed that. Uh, liberal, liberal friends were suddenly talking about buying guns. Progressive friends were texting about topics like border security and immigration. In a whisper, one even admitted to watching Fox News. Good God. It's almost sacrilege if you consider yourself to be a Democrat. And then, of course, here we have that uh, uh, capture of Chamath Palapataya, that billionaire venture capitalist who said that he is now all in on Donald Trump. And he voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Joe Biden in 2020. But as a result of the ever radicalization of the ultra left wing of the Democrats and their uh, affiliates in uh, with the world of terrorism, frankly, uh, he has felt that the Democrat Party is no longer a place for him to call home. So as more people consider to uh, or consider themselves moving closer and closer to conservatism as a matter of uh, self-preservation, more people are beginning to wake up and find that they simply cannot co-sign what the Democrats are doing here in America any longer. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing. Uh, there is nothing in the title of this video that would indicate that I'm talking about Zionism specifically. We're talking about... Uh, well, now we're going to be talking about the House Speaker race and how that went down. So obviously, Kevin McCarthy, having lost his position as Speaker of the House, he was not happy about that. He made the promise to the Freedom Caucus that the chair could be vacated if he was not willing to accept the rules that he had previously agreed to. So 
allegedly Kevin McCarthy is melting down as a result of no longer having the control over the Republican caucus that he thought he was going to be able to exercise after leaving the House speakership. I think that Kevin McCarthy had a lot to do with the people who refused to vote for and support Jim Jordan. Uh, And uh, after a number of false starts with three different candidates and a whole bunch of other people who thought they might throw their hat in the ring, um, Kevin McCarthy had suggested that he be made speaker once again and that Jim Jordan be made assistant assistant speaker. Now, I had never actually heard of the position of assistant speaker, and I think that's probably because it's a rather ceremonial position. You're the guy who gets to fill in if Kevin McCarthy has to go to lunch with the lobbyists. Uh, And perhaps, you know, maybe you would help whip up votes in the way that party leaders would as well. But this was obviously an attempt by Kevin McCarthy to snake his way back into that chair, grab that gavel and continue to control things. Business as usual for the bankers, the neocons and, of course, the lobbyists. So. He floated the idea of coming back as speaker, Jim Jordan taking the assistant speaker, but they don't really know what Jim Jordan would have done. Uh, It's also not mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, although there are references to it in paperwork within the House of Representatives. So Kevin McCarthy was quoted as being very frustrated that he wasn't the one who was able to handpick this speaker. I think Tom Emmer was probably his dream pick. And uh, in the same way that um, the House caucus was not willing to uh, allow Kevin McCarthy to continue on business as usual, they were not willing to accept Tom Emmer because he would really be bringing business as usual. So long story short, Mike Johnson became the choice of the House Republican caucus to become Speaker of the House. Now, I I wasn't overly familiar with with Johnson. And uh, I couldn't really tell you much about him. I'm not following Louisiana politics uh, with any uh, specific interest. But in looking into him, uh, there was certainly a couple of key moments that stood out to me. And I remembered this comment that he made to Tucker Carlson after Nancy Pelosi uh, unceremoniously ripped up President Trump's speech After he spoke uh, in the House of Representatives giving the um, State of the Union address. So let me just get through this commercial and we'll go ahead and uh, hear what Mike Johnson had to say. Wow, this is so loud. Okay, here we go. You are obviously watching there at the State of the Union. when you saw the speaker rip the president's speech into pieces, did you take that as a sign of, of politeness, as an, as an expression of kindness and friendship? No, of course not. I mean, it was a shameful display. It was stunning, really, to many members sitting in the House. It was totally unprecedented. It was shameless. And it was also unlawful, Tucker. Um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this the last 48 hours, and I did a little legal memo to point out to my colleagues that she actually committed a felony when she tore that, that paper up. It wasn't just any copy of the State of the Union address. It was the copy, the original. And we have over two centuries of custom and tradition and, of course, the Constitution that calls for the State of the Union address, uh, that the, when the president delivers the copies to those top legal officers, the two top legislative officers in that right. co-equal branch of government, those are the official documents of the House. And if you tear those up, you violated a specific statute in the criminal code. 
So I remembered covering that at the time. I just didn't remember that this was the same Mike Johnson, the same guy. Uh, and uh, I like that idea uh, when when he posed it on Tucker. I, I believe that Nancy Pelosi committed a crime. And obviously, the Democrats seem to act with uh, just absolute impunity. They believe that they're free to do whatever they want, whenever they want. It's a different set of rules for them than it is for us. It's a different set of rules for people who support Donald Trump than it is for the rest of the swamp. So Mike Johnson, after a, another secret ballot, became the choice for Speaker of the House. Another aspect about Mike Johnson's record that I really love and uh, it's the only person who threw their hat in the ring with any real chance of becoming speaker was the fact that he actually supported challenging the election results in 2020. He was one of a very few number of people. So he was announced as the choice for Republicans. Uh, he received 128 votes. Byron Donalds got 29 votes, and that made him the clear-cut choice. So last night, as they were standing in the halls of Congress, uh, the mainstream media, the mainstream media, attempted to shame and question Mike Johnson about his challenge to the 2020 election after the debacle that was that election. So let's go ahead and take a listen. Next question. Shut up. Nobody cares. Uh, you're not going to shame us for believing, for knowing unequivocally that the 2020 election was stolen uh, in the same way that the 2022 elections were also stolen. But 2020 was particularly egregious. And this, my friend, mainstream media reporter, is America. Uh, and those people in Congress have a responsibility to stand up for the rule of law to fight for the people that they were elected to represent. And I applaud Mike Johnson and anybody else who actually does that in Congress. Now, when Elise Stefanik officially nominated him earlier today, uh, she had a lot to say, obviously, and she took some choice words with the DNC. She claimed that we convened this esteemed body today at a time of great crisis across America at a time of unprecedented challenges in this hallowed chamber and a time when our most precious ally, Israel's very existence, is under attack from forces of evil. Yesterday, our dear colleague, our former conference chair, our chair of energy and commerce, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, nominated Mike Johnson in our conference, and she put it best, and I want to quote her today. She said, trust has been broken, and we have come to a standstill. How do we restore trust between members, leadership, and ultimately between Congress and we the people. Kathy went on to say there's a sense that it cannot be business as usual. And that is the important part that I want to point out because she's absolutely right. This cannot be another example of business as usual. If Mike Johnson steps into that chair, if he picks up that gavel and he starts doing exactly what Kevin McCarthy, what Nancy Pelosi, and what so many other speakers before him did, uh, then the American people are going to let him know about it. We're going to remain as, uh, as, as loud and proud as we possibly can. Now, she mentions Israel as our number one ally. 
I think that there is an assumption in Congress that Israel is our number one ally, that we have to be aligned 100 percent with Israel. Um, But the United States is stretched so thin at this moment. And to me, as much as I like Elise Stefanik, I feel like that was a covert tell uh, as to what the Republicans and neocons in Congress want to do. They really wanted to get back to work so that we could start sending more money, more troops, more guns, more bullets to more countries all across planet Earth. Now, uh, Mike Johnson uh, has not been a war hawk. He has not supported funding these endless wars. I believe he voted for the initial appropriation of aid to the Ukraine. Uh, But since that time, he has not been one of those people trying to send as much money and as many bodies as possible. But Mike is apparently a man of deep faith, Uh, He has uh, been a respected constitutional lawyer. That's certainly an uh, aspect that I really appreciate. Uh, He is also a titan of the Judiciary Committee. He's also on the House Armed Services Committee. He is also vice chair of the Republican Conference. And uh, the one very important thing here is that it seems like the entirety of that Republican Conference were willing to get behind him to elect him. We went through a lot of twists and turns to get here, and along the way, uh, many people were exposed uh, for not truly representing the American people. So now, with Mike Johnson, I think that the Lord has worked in mysterious ways and given us someone that uh, the conference was finally willing to come to an agreement on. I think that the lack of support for Jim Jordan was really about punishing Jim Jordan and punishing anybody else who would dare to go against Kevin McCarthy. By the time they got to Mike Johnson, I think that everybody was a little bit tired. Uh, I think that they saw that the majority of the conference was willing to vote for him. And so they said, you know what, we'll go ahead and get him in there. Maybe they're thinking they can blackmail him or put some pressure on him at the end of the day. But I do have to say we must give Mike Johnson the opportunity to do the right thing. If he doesn't, well, then we're going to let him know about it. Buck Wayne says the House has finally has a Johnson at the podium instead of a bribed and bought bonus hole for speaker. Yes, this is a big Mike with an actual Johnson and uh, hope to God he's going to do the right thing. But he swept the Republican conference, 220 votes. He didn't lose a single vote. Nobody voted for McCarthy or Donalds or anybody else. Uh, And there were 429 members in the House of Representatives. Uh, 220 were Republican. They all voted for him. There was one member who was absent. There was 209 Democrats. They had three people who were absent. So Johnson got 220 out of 215 votes that were needed to claim that uh, prized gavel. Uh, And uh, just a couple of hours before the vote, Mike Johnson went to Twitter and he posted this meme right here of the interior of the House. And it says, in God we trust. Uh, And uh, this is going to have to be one of those moments where we trust God. And uh, I think that In no small part, his victory is due because of the endorsement that he received by President Donald J. Trump, who was in court today, and we're going to be talking about that next. But President Trump uh, had a statement that he made for the cameras outside of the courtroom uh, in his uh, very unfair civil trial 
in New York State. Let's go ahead and take a listen to what President Trump had to say about Mike Johnson's victory. Congratulate Mike Johnson. He will be a great speaker of the House, and we were very happy to help. I've known him for a long time. He's a tremendous leader, a tremendous man. comes from a wonderful place in Louisiana. He is going to be, uh, he's going to make us all proud. So at this time yesterday, nobody was thinking of Mike. And then we put out the word, and now he's the Speaker of the House. So I want to just uh, thank all of the supporters that I have, and I want to thank all of the supporters that Mike has. And again, he'll be a great speaker. I think you're going to be very proud of him. Thank you, everybody. All right. So I, I see Algorithm Q. You think that uh, he's a Mike Pence clone. I think he looks more like Brick Tamland from uh, Anchorman, personally. But I, I have to say, We're talking uh, about a fair amount of uh, strategy that got to the point where Mike Johnson threw his name in the ring. Up until that fourth vote, nobody was thinking about Mike Johnson. Nobody was considering him. Now, uh, another aspect about Mike Johnson's record is that we can go and take a look and see what he's done throughout the time that he's been there. And overwhelmingly, like 75% of the time, he has voted the way that I would want him to. And I'm not even a resident of Louisiana, but he has done what I believe is good for the American people. Let me see if we can pull this up and we'll compare Mike Pence's record uh, to him. If we go to conservative review and we look up Mike Johnson, there we go. Uh, He's got a uh, Liberty score of 74%. Now, I don't know if we will be able to find Mike Pence in here. Let's go. Oh, sorry. Yeah, because he is no longer in Congress. But as an example, Adam Kinzinger, he's got a 34% Liberty score. Adam Schiff, he has an 8% Liberty score. Let's see where Tom Emmer was. Tom Emmer was at a 69%. I think they've got, okay. Let's see where Jim Jordan was. Jim Jordan's at a 94%. Now, I'm I'm not going to lie. I would have loved a Jim Jordan speakership. Let's see if Mike, what Mike Pence's score was when he was in Congress. Mm-mm-mm. And it doesn't look like they have um, historical information on here. But we're at the point where we are, meaning that we can't do anything else about it other than hope, pray, and watch to see what Mike Johnson's record is going to look like as Speaker of the House. Now, he has also issued his own statement about uh, what he plans to do. It is the honor of a lifetime to have been elected the 56th Speaker of the House. Thank you to my colleagues, friends, staff, and family. And actually, let me just open it up because it is longer than the traditional character limit. Thank you to my colleagues, etc. It has been an arduous few weeks and a reminder that the House is as complicated and diverse as the people we represent. The urgency of this moment demands bold, decisive action to restore trust, advance our legislative priorities, and demonstrate good governance. Our House Republican Conference is united and eager to work. As Speaker, I will ensure the House delivers results and inspires change for the American people. 
We will restore trust in this body. We will advance a comprehensive conservative policy agenda, combat the harmful policies of the Biden administration and support our allies abroad. And we will restore sanity to a government desperately in need of it. Let's get back to work. So that's a strong statement. And I think that you and I both know that if they're going to restore trust in Congress, it's going to take a lot more than a couple of dangling pieces of bacon before the America First crowd. Uh, They're going to have to really change the way this game is played. And if Mike Johnson doesn't do that, well, then we'll call him to account at that time. Uh, Thank you very much, Sean Joe, for, for dropping that cookie over there. Um, yes, uh, knock my socks off. He, he's, uh, from everything I've seen shows him as being a hundred percent endorsed and on board with president Trump's agenda. And uh, I think that there are a couple of people in Congress that are doing that. Uh, not as many as I would like, uh, but as long as we have enough people in the freedom caucus to control, uh, at least a portion of the agenda, I think it's going to be a lot easier to get that stuff through. All right, so let's move on to Georgia. Mark Meadows has reportedly testified to a grand jury after receiving immunity uh, from special counsel Jack Smith. Obviously, Mark Meadows is quite the get if they can get him to lie about whatever it was that he was doing with President Trump because he was the White House chief of staff. Uh, And, of course, he had closer proximity to President Trump than virtually anybody else. So he testified to a federal grand jury about what they claim are efforts by President Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, The immunity deal has not been released yet. Certainly, it would be contingent upon his testimony before this grand jury. They claim that the testimony he provided included evidence that he repeatedly told Trump in the immediate aftermath of the election that the allegations about fraud were unsubstantiated. Well, just because someone says the allegations are unsubstantiated doesn't mean that they actually are. And even if you believe them to be unsubstantiated, that doesn't mean that the person you're trying to tell doesn't believe that they are substantiated. I believe that there was ample evidence to suggest that the 2020 election had massive levels of fraud in it in virtually every single state in the nation, and there were multiple types of fraud. This was not uh, a a difficult thing to divine. I, I mean, you look at the on the ground reports that you're getting from people all across the country, uh, the statistical evidence, the ballot dumps coming in, uh, Republicans getting shut out of the count rooms, uh, suitcases full of ballots being pulled out. Uh, but we don't know exactly when Mark Meadows was granted immunity, only that he has appeared at least three times. Uh, President Trump, uh, of course, has been indicted for conspiring to defraud the United States, which is just such BS. And they're hoping that Mark Meadows is going to be a major witness against President Trump in this case, where they're calling it the fake elector scheme uh, and allegedly to put pressure on Mike Pence to stop the congressional certification. Of course, uh, Mark Meadows was present also with President Trump on January 6th. Uh, also, uh, Mike Cipollone was there. They allegedly implored President Trump not to go to the Capitol for fear of being charged with every crime 
imaginable. And that was coming from Cassidy Hutchinson uh, when she testified before the January 6th committee. Now, I don't trust a single word that comes out of Cassidy Hutchinson's mouth. Uh, There is also a possibility they might try to get Mark Meadows to uh, provide information in the classified documents case. Anywhere that they could use Mark Meadows, you better believe they're going to. However, there is a slight, slight wrinkle in the prosecutor's attempts to use Mark Meadows. From what we're being told, uh, Mark Meadows had allegedly told the special counsel that he never saw any evidence of fraud. Well, the only thing is that Mark Meadows published a book about his time working for President Trump in the White House, and he said the exact opposite. Uh, He said that uh, they were looking at the data and uh, that they believed that the election had been fraudulently certified. So if he's telling the truth and he lied in the book, President Trump's attorneys would be able to use that as an argument to discredit him. If he lied in the well, excuse me, if he if he lies now and perjures himself and says that we never thought that there was any evidence of fraud, but then of course he was telling the truth in the book, well then he's going to put himself in legal jeopardy. So it's not as clear cut as Mark Meadows coming in and saying a bunch of stuff that's going to get President Trump uh, to get convicted. I think that Mark Meadows is going to be an unreliable witness in the same way that Michael Cohen is an unreliable witness in the New York case. President Trump also had choice words regarding Michael Cohen's testimony in New York. And as he came into the courtroom, or perhaps out of the courtroom, uh, he spoke with reporters about this specific instance. And then, of course, his general feelings about the state of America and these very unfair cases, uh, which are being used to not only discredit him, but attempt to stop him from coming back into the office of the presidency. Let's take a listen. And it looks like it's going to take a second to go ahead and pop up. Okay. And I don't know why this isn't working. Okay. Here we go. Hold on. This is far too quiet. I need to turn up the audio for everyone involved. Let me go right here. Okay, try it again. Look at it, you can 
do whatever you want with them, but do not uh, do not do anything in terms of considering them without analysis or due diligence. And that's very clear. The other thing is that, as you know, and I'll say it again and again because I've never seen anything like it, I don't get a jury. Uh, this was a trial should have never been brought, but if we had a jury, it would have been fair, at least, even if it was a somewhat negative jury, because no negative jury would vote against me. But this judge will, because this judge is uh, a very partisan judge, with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of him, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. So uh, we are doing very well. The facts are speaking very loud. But he's a totally discredited witness, and you haven't seen anything yet. This goes on for a long time, but he's a totally discredited witness. Uh, on uh, the fact that a statute was used to sue Donald Trump that's never been used before. Think of it. They used a statute that's never been used before because they didn't want to have a jury, and because this statute doesn't allow a jury, and because this statute discusses things that are much, much different than anybody would think. This is really uh, from a fascist country. That's what they're doing. It's election interference. Uh, they're doing it for that reason. They're doing it because they're losing in the polls. They're doing it because our country is going to hell. Our country has become a laughing stock all over the world. And this is why they do this and other litigation. Uh, but we will win. Ultimately, we will win because that's uh, the facts are on our side to a level that Nobody's ever seen anything like it before. This was a case that never should have been brought, but certainly it was a case that should have had a jury. And we don't have a jury. We don't have the option of even thinking about a jury. And we have a very biased group, and we have a corrupt attorney general that brought this case so that she could be elected governor. And that failed. She didn't get elected governor. And she continues on with the case. Thank you very much. All right, so a couple of things here. President Trump, number one, is under a gag order in this specific case. And he made a comment about the judge, the unfair nature of that judge. Of course, he also had to comment on the unfair nature of the charges themselves. This is a very, very unfair situation that they've put President Trump in. And as he stated, it is all subjective. Uh, they are being totally subjective uh, to the point where they're using their subjective bias to try to destroy President Trump. Now, with regards to Michael Cohen, uh, I don't care personally whether it's kayfabe or not. What we are what we are witnessing here is an example of the deep state panicking and using this massive toolbox that they have to try to destroy Donald Trump. And as a result of their actions, the entirety of America is watching what's happening. And they are waking up as a result. If it can happen to President Trump, the former president of the United States of America, then what's to stop the state of New York from coming after your business? What's to stop the United States government from coming after you as a private citizen? So it might be kayfabe with Michael Cohen, but he did go to prison for lying. He is a discredited witness. So anything that Michael Cohen says, President Trump's attorneys can call into question. It, it shows me that the government is so desperate to get Donald Trump that they're willing to put somebody on the stand that they already threw in prison for allegedly lying about criminal actions that they were involved in. That, to me, is the important stuff, because it is all an aspect of people waking up. 
And people paying attention are looking at this and saying, you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe that this is what the government is doing to try to destroy Donald Trump. It's so obviously an unfair and completely unjudicious use of taxpayer dollars. It should never have happened. And I think Donald Trump is right. He is going to win at the end of the day. But as this case continues, Judge Ngoran has made it very clear that he's going to make this as painful as possible for President Trump. So after making those comments earlier today, Judge Ngoran has once again hit Donald Trump with a fine for stepping outside of that gag order, which is uh, quite literally uh, placing limits on President Trump's ability to speak freely, uh, to use his First Amendment rights. And he also put President Trump on the witness stand. He literally warned him, don't do it again or it'll be worse. Now, I don't think President Trump is going to stop talking about this. I think that President Trump is happy to have Judge Ngoran slap him with fine after fine after fine, up to and including putting him in jail. Imagine the power inherent in that visual right there. President Trump has already been forced into these humiliation rituals by putting him in front of the cameras and giving him a mugshot and then releasing it to the public, making him get fingerprinted in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. If Judge Ngoran actually has the stupidity to put President Trump in jail, uh, he will be elevated to a new level of folk hero status. He's already a legend as it is. So he put President Trump on the stand uh, after he blasted him for uh, allegedly violating the gag order with those remarks that he made to the press. Uh, and uh, it said that um, he is uh, the language is sometimes not clear, but this is clear to me. And he said he'd take it under advisement. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, I think that President Trump, again, is happy to pay as many fines as uh, as as is necessary. Uh, but every single time he tries to siphon more money out of President Trump, he just makes his case stronger and he makes him more popular with the American people. Now, uh, before we leave here today, there are a couple of key things happening at the border that I want to make sure you guys are aware of. First of all, the conversation around Palestinian refugees has been kind of uh, caged within the confines of a possibility. Well, my friends, uh, Palestinians uh, are already showing up at the southern border, and it appears that authorities at the border are knowingly casting these particular refugees, illegal aliens, uh, into baskets other than Palestinians. So they are intentionally misidentifying them so that Americans or perhaps uh, agents of the government are not aware that they're here as Palestinians. Now, I want to remind you about the recent Iranian spy ring that was busted inside the highest levels of Joe Biden's administration and the Department of Defense. Uh, perhaps this is part of a false flag operation in the making, uh, a, uh, a potential sleeper cell that they're setting up all over the nation so that at a moment's notice, they can be activated uh, to cause some mayhem and perhaps take some American lives at the end of the day. But 
Palestinian uh, immigrants, illegal aliens are being apprehended crossing the U.S. border illegally, and the Customs and Border Patrol are um, willfully putting them under different nationalities. And that's coming from a Border Patrol, uh, a former chief of the Border Patrol, and a current agency official who is still working there. Uh, And in addition to the current and former agency officials that have confirmed Palestinians are coming through and getting written down as something else. Uh, The DCNF, which is the Daily Caller News Foundation, has also obtained screenshots from the internal systems at the Border Patrol that shows that Palestine is not even a category. And if you try to search for it, to put them under the heading of a Palestinian, there is no matches. So the intelligence officials that are uh, currently warning about possible Palestinian terrorists crossing the southern border and then engaging in acts of terrorism and uh, setting up sleeper cells around the country, uh, they're being told to look out for them. But of course, without the ability to actually categorize them as even being in the country, it makes it just a little bit more difficult. And uh, I truly do believe that they are trying to set up a scenario where these people could be here without any real knowledge or forewarning, and that would make it so much easier for them to engage in some sort of terroristic activity. Uh, There is a no written policy on how to record a Palestinian, that Border Patrol agent said. In my experience, since this falls within the legal borders of Israel, Individuals would be documented as Israel, and the narrative, which is not easily searchable, would likely not automatically explain that the individual claims to be a Palestinian. So the narrative of this record is 100% dependent on what the agent wants to include and what information they're able to get. And you have to understand that in federal bureaucracies, such as these uh, agencies at the border and, uh, you know, in in the uh, public administration sector of the United States government, people don't want to do any more work than they actually have to. And so if there's not an easy opportunity for them to actually select a Palestinian or notate that they're from Palestine or, or even that they might likely be on the terror watch list, there's just simply no way to do it. Now, one agent who has previously processed Palestinians that possessed passports that were issued by the Palestinian Authority told them that they had to be classified at that time as Israeli. Uh, He said, I had processed some Palestinians before all of this popped off, and they obviously did not want to be uh, specified what their name was, but they were listed as Israeli, even though they had the Palestinian Authority passports. When I looked into our processing module, no such category exists. It's just not an option. In a government like ours, if something such as this is just not an option, I believe it's been done intentionally. Uh, The issue of Palestine and Israel has been on uh, the the minds of so many American leaders and so many lawmakers as well. So for them to have just left it off the table, I just don't believe that that was done uh, out of stupidity. Now, I think that we have a uh, very potentially dangerous situation here uh, with the additional forced migration that's coming out of the Middle East. Clearly, I think that's what the deep state is uh, looking uh, to stir up. They they want more of these people here because um, they're a group that is easy to control. 
if you're an illegal alien, you're running from a war-torn area, Democrats are telling you to come to America, uh, that you're going to be taken care of, that you're going to get all of these benefits, uh, then you're going to owe a vig to whoever it was that suggested you come here. You're going to have to give a little bit of kickback or payback to the people who made that possible. Uh, and uh, as you come here from various countries, you push out the necessary resources that would otherwise be given to American citizens. And most Americans now understand just what a spectacularly bad idea it is to allow for this unrestricted migratory flow coming into this country. That, my friends, is uh, a new development, and again, it's part of this wider awakening that America is undertaking. Uh, to think that the Democrat mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, uh, would publicly be discussing how illegal immigration is destroying the city of New York, uh, and he agrees with the vast majority of America. Uh, that's not something that I thought I would see, but I'm very, very excited to know it. So the uh, New Yorkers that have been asked about this, 84% say it's a serious problem. 57% say it's very serious. Uh, now, you don't normally see an issue where at least 79% of Democrats, Republicans, independent men, women, uh, basically every single demographic group agree on a situation. So for the entirety virtually of America, nearly 80% of all Americans see this for exactly what it is. You know that you've got a significant problem. Now, why is it uh, that they want these people here? Again, they can control them. Uh, it allows them to exploit these groups. And we're seeing a fascinating thing right now. Uh, Democrats have traditionally exploited uh, Jewish people uh, because they've used their uh, the argument that people who disagree with Democrats are Nazis. Uh, you must be an anti-Semite. You, you must be a, a misogynist. You must be a racist. They use those labels and they use them because they have uh, control over uh, the Jewish population. Uh, now, they have sort of change the demographic that they're looking to exploit. Uh, now, it's no longer politically expedient to exploit the Jews. It's now more politically expedient to exploit the Muslims. And because there is this innate hatred between Muslims and Jews, not all of them, but, you know, in a general sense, uh, they are creating this uh, pressure point here in America. Stunningly, over the weekend uh, at George Washington University, an American university and that is uh, widely known, uh, this sign right here was broadcast on one of the buildings on campus, Glory to Our Martyrs, Glory to Our Martyrs. And, and, and you're seeing this sentiment popping up uh, across universities all over the nation uh, because, again, those younger people are also exploited by the Democrats. Whereas someone like us, we're interested in saving America. We're interested in safeguarding our nation. These other people are only interested in uh, putting together as much power as they possibly can so that they can subjugate the people that they don't agree with. And you have many, many 
very, very wealthy Democrat nonprofit organizations all across America who are backing the demonstrations that we're seeing because they have their foot in the door of every single one of these actions. Uh, There is a group called the Tides Center, uh, and they provide fiscal sponsorship to a number of these groups that are supporting the Palestinian side, uh, either Palestinian people or terrorists who reside in Palestine. Uh, And of course, uh, they are funding these groups so that we'll have protests out in the street. And this problem is only going to get worse. You know, they can no longer exploit black America. The people who were supporting BLM, they woke up to the BLM grift, and the black Americans that supported the Democrats, uh, they've moved over to the right. Not all of them, but a good number of them. So the Democrats have abandoned black America. And again, because they can no longer exploit the Jews, uh, they've abandoned Jewish America. So now they've got Muslim America. And so they're going to be exploiting them, and they're putting all of their 501c3 dollars into that project. So that we now, instead of having uh, riots in the street and fights between the left and the right, we now are going to have riots in the streets and fights between Muslims and Jews. Uh, Mark my words, uh, they're going to continue to inflame this and it's going to get worse. All right, you guys, I think that is going to be it. uh, But I... Gaza, yes, okay, yes. Gaza, but Palestine, I mean, you know, I I, I don't have uh, the time or the patience to uh, to worry about uh, the various classifications. You've got people who say that they're Palestinian, this is Palestine, uh, and then you've got people who say Gaza, West Bank. I mean, it's all the same to me, basically, the Middle East. Uh, so don't worry about it. I'm not trying to get too specific. All right, you guys, uh, so let's see. Um, there is, uh, just a couple of thank yous I need to give over here on the foxhole filter dog one. Thank you for the can. Uh, thank you very much to M the painter who said tides foundation is an open society funded organization. Yeah. Uh, doesn't, doesn't surprise me. Um, let's see. So Okay, well, I mean, there may not be an official country that uh, is recognized by the United States as Palestine, but the people living there, they certainly call themselves Palestinians, and there are other countries that recognize Palestine as a country. So I would say it's in dispute, and it's just easier for me to say Palestine than to uh, call out every single place where uh, people living in the Middle East who consider themselves Muslim and consider themselves Palestinian uh, to be living. Let's just say for the sake of brevity, we're going to leave it there. All right. Uh, when will I have Lieutenant Colonel Ivan Raiklin back on your show again? Um, it's definitely going to be sometime soon. Uh, I've had so many people requesting to come on the show in the last couple of months. I was booked, and I think I am booked right now until mid-December. Um, so I will definitely have him here sometime soon. Uh, let me see. We've got uh, the Fertile Crescent, the Levant. Yeah, I mean, there's so many freaking names for the Middle East. So it's a sandbox, uh, basically. Uh, yes. And, uh, and yeah. And, 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 you know, to be honest with you, I mean, what's the difference between Gaza and the West Bank other than like where they're located? I mean, before Israel was officially created in 1948, it was called something else. It gets tiring. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's mentally exhausting to be perfectly honest with you. All right. So, 
I think that's it. We're going to go ahead and call it a day tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern. Join me on Badlands Media uh, with Brad Getz for another episode of Altered State. And until that time, good luck and God bless. We'll see you then.